Okay. Can we put that last slide back up? I don't know if that's going to work. Um, really fast. Um, so if uh, there are any questions, I would like to give you folks that opportunity to, to clarify anything that maybe you didn't understand or maybe uh, further explain something. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Maternity missionaries. The maternity missionaries, yes. where were they needed? Okay, uh, yeah, the hospital does, uh, there are a couple of houses that are available on the property there next to the hospital, um, and we do have other housing available. So, yeah, what we're looking for, uh, for expanding the services at the hospital, if God would provide some other people, um, a surgeon or two, and some, some people could help to establish a maternity ward, uh, the mission would be able to, to find housing for those people. And we're looking at, at something that would probably be several years, not just somebody coming out for a couple of months and, and uh, you know, doing something, but we're looking at, you know, a long-term process of investing themselves in, in the lives and ministry there to help, um, to help the nationals really learn how to do it right and properly. So we're praying that God would provide people that would be able to do that and help us expand uh, the medical ministry in that way. She asked where, and that, that's in northern Benin. Oh, I'm yes. sorry. Yes, that would yeah. be in Benin, uh, is where, not in Niger. Uh, Benin is where the, the hospital is located. Okay. Stephen, why don't you do this side? Okay, go ahead. Uh, two things. Uh, one really minor. Uh, one of the pictures up there showed a picture of a truck with mm-hmm. a bunch of white bales on it. Was that cotton? Yeah, actually, it was all cotton, and it was not baled yet. It's just loose cotton. They just kind of pack it on there, and the guys get up on top and jump up and down, pack it gotcha. down, try to get as much as they can on a truck. Okay. Kind of crazy, <laughs> but that's how uh, they do it. <laughs> the second question is, is, when do you think that the, the, the translation will be completed, or how is that really yeah. going? Yeah, um, we are almost done with the Old Testament. Uh, that's what we've been working on for the last 10 years since we've been in Benin. Um, and right now we've got everything in the Old Testament done except for uh, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Basically three, the three naughtiest poetic books <laughs> are what we have left. Uh, so we praise God that we've actually made pretty good progress. And again, even during uh, the years that I was not physically present uh, in Benin, they were able to continue moving forward uh, through technology in different ways. Uh, so we're anticipating if we can stick to the schedule that we've established and, and keep working at the same pace, we're, we're trusting that uh, we'll have the, the Bible completed by 2025. That's what we're looking at. Uh, to have the entire Bible in Dendi by 2025. Okay, yes. Are you actually finding that people of the um, Islamic faith or I mean, the basically programs of youth are actually dealing and speaking actual truth? That, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, it, it really depends on... I don't know, I, I guess I'd have to say it depends on the individual because... There are a lot of people that are just, as you, as you use the word programmed, you know, from, from a very early age uh, to just understand and accept this is, what, this is what 
you know, you need to believe, and if you don't do this, you're not going to make it into paradise, uh, and that sort of thing. But we do encounter a lot of people uh, who really are searching for the truth. A lot of people who have been brought up in this mentality, but they're recognizing it's not really meeting my needs. I'm, I'm not getting that peace. I'm not getting that assurance. It's, it's just, you know, I'm going through these rituals. I'm doing all the stuff they tell me to do, but it's not really happening for me. And so we do get a lot of people that are questioning it and searching for the truth. And um, it's as we are involved in ministries like the medical ministry, and uh, the same church that has developed that medical ministry is also working on uh, establishing a, a school. They're building a school there, and they're hoping to start this fall. And as they see that we are endeavoring to, to meet their needs on a physical level and, and, and meet their, their daily needs, they are much, much more open to, to understanding and listening to the gospel and what the gospel has to say. Uh, we have seen so many interesting stories of people who have been very close to the gospel, but because someone in their family had some sort of medical issue and we were able to fix it after they'd been to several other, uh, you know, witch doctors and local hospitals and different things and, and everybody else just made it worse. And then when they came to our clinic, the people actually did serious diagnosis and were able to figure out what was going on and, and, and fix the problem. Uh, just, just that in itself has have helped people to, to readjust their thinking about what Christians are all about and, and, and what it is we're sharing with them. Would the religion that will turn on their own people when they convert, how does that play into the situation that you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's actually, again, a, a very good question because, you know, uh, uh, how, is, how does a religion that turns on its own people, um, how do people want to follow that? I I've, I've personally have asked myself the same question, but it's, again, the people are so programmed, brainwashed, whatever word you want to use, they are so, that, that's all they know. That's all they've heard from infancy. And, and basically, their, their viewpoint is that when you, if you take any other religion, then you're, you're basically turning your back on your family, on your culture, on it, because it's all interwoven very tightly in, in the Muslim culture. And it's not just, I'm changing what I believe in my head and my heart. It's like, I'm rejecting my family. I'm rejecting everything you've ever taught me. I'm rejecting my culture. Now, obviously, as Christians, we are living out, and, and I'm not we as the foreigners as much as our local believers who are still living in their culture and still being very much a dendy person, but yet being able to show people, I can be a Christian and still be a dendy person. And, and as, as our believers are, are continuing to live that out, you know, people are recognizing that, that it, isn't, it isn't necessarily renouncing your culture, but that is what, is still, what they're still told. And there is the very real um, fa- the, the reality that if they do decide to convert, they will be persecuted. I mean, basically for a Muslim person uh, in, in West Africa to decide they want to become a Christian, they are basically saying, I am willing to die. You know, literally, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. They understand that as a literal truth because they actually could be killed next week 
if they publicly tell their family and others that I have chosen to become a Christian. And we've seen it happen many times, not actually people being killed, but attempts being made on their life. But we also have seen many, many times that God has sometimes miraculously protected His children when they uh, when they show faith and, and they're willing to take that step. And, and so that too becomes an amazing testimony uh, to the people. But it's just, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing for us to deal with because we are dealing with, there's such intense uh, cultural pressure and the reality that this could be my death sentence. And so it, 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 it's the peer pressure. I, I have lost count. Years ago, I lost count of how many people have actually told me, I understand what you're saying. It makes a lot more sense than what they're teaching us at the mosque. But it would cost me so much if I decided to follow Jesus, and so I'm not quite there yet. And, and so many people are there, and they, they aren't willing to take that final step for fear of the persecution and the, the social ostracism that they will have to face if they choose to follow Jesus. So it's a very, very difficult thing. And the only, the only solution, as is the case with any of us here in the United States as well, is if God's Spirit is truly working in that person's heart and they truly understand and want Jesus Christ to be their Savior, then they will take that step and, and He will meet their needs. Uh, so it is a very challenging thing because on a regular basis, um, you know, the, the mosques all around in our villages are, are constantly telling the people, you know, these Christians are telling you a bunch of lies and, and, and you're going to go to hell if you follow them. And if you do decide to follow them, we're going to help you get there. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very difficult uh, situation. Yeah. Very challenging. But bottom line, we, we, we need to be sharing the truth with them through our lives and our ministries as well as our, our, the spoken word and let God's Spirit do the rest. It's, it's not a uh, question, but a comment. Uh, as you were describing that type of interaction and, you know, them replying back, it's just going to cost me too much. I, I, I don't see much of a difference between the culture over there and, and over here where people just aren't speaking out, either out of fear or because they simply do not believe what they believe is really real. That's true. Thank you. I was just thinking when you were talking about the ministry that's going out to the youth, that um, maybe that's one of the areas where you would be able to, to break that chain is being able to catch some of them with the gospel when they're young. Yes. Yeah, we have, um, we have found, I think the statistics are pretty much the same around the world, uh, that that the majority of uh, the people that we have who are believers now, and again, this is in all three countries where we've worked in West Africa, we've seen that it's very much the case that if you get them when they're young, um, that's, that's when it's going to work. Uh, we have had, we've had a few, but they're very rare, that you have people that are so um, indoctrinated in the Muslim culture that once they get past about 25, it's extremely rare that that person is willing to... to change uh, their faith. And again, bottom line, it's, it's God's Spirit that does it, not our, our convincing them, but there is just so much more 
that they have to lose because by that point they, they have an occupation, they have a family, they have a wife, they have kids, and all of that would be taken away if they become a Christian. Whereas a young person before, um, before a person is, is you know, established and married and all of that, they don't have as much to lose um, materially. And so it, it is true that we, we find that the, the work with young people is, is critical because once they get, as I said, once they get past a certain point there, it's, it's very difficult uh, for them to be willing to take that step. So uh, that is another area that, that we really do emphasize a lot in our ministries. No, over here. Stephen? Okay, he's got it. Um, more generally, I was just wondering, do you feel safe? Um, what is your security? Hmm. Are there other um, denominations there with you? Um, other faiths? Uh, are the Muslims also doing the same things? How about uh, the Chinese and the Russians? I understand that they're permeating Africa now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah there are a lot of uh, Chinese uh, not as much as the Russians, but uh, Chinese are everywhere in Africa. And uh, just Google it. You'll be boggled by, by how much they are investing in Africa. Um, but uh, from that, that perspective, we really don't... Uh, well, let me just start with their first question, that we personally really don't feel that, there's any, uh, that we're in any danger personally. Um, first of all, this, this whole issue of, of the Muslim pressure and threats and all of that is against their own people. Uh, as foreigners, they recognize, first of all, they, they just accept, well, you guys are the white people and Christianity is the white man religion, so you, you can have what you believe type of thing. And it's, it's more their own people that they will persecute when they convert. Um, so in that sense, we've never uh, been threatened uh, directly in that sense. Um, there is... Um, in the, the surrounding area, there is a potential of the terrorism that is, that is very rampant in West Africa. Uh, all of the countries around us, uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, and Nigeria, all are having issues with terrorist groups and, and all of this stuff going on. But at this point, uh, the country of Benin, where we're working, uh, thanks to, I guess, the, the vigilance of the government and, obviously, God's grace, uh, is still an area that has not been affected by the problems of terrorism. So we, we don't feel that we personally are um, in danger in any way that way at this point. Um, as far as uh, other denominations, uh, the only other groups that we have in the north where we're working are there's, there's several different sorts of uh, Pentecostal uh, churches and groups that, that have uh, scattered ministries here and there, but uh, they've never been extremely effective. Um, they generally try to show up in our villages and then try to steal the sheep from our churches. And for the most part, that hasn't been much of an issue, and they haven't been very successful, for which we praise God. Um, there are a couple of uh, cults, Christian cults, that also exist, uh, ones that were actually invented in Benin, um, that, that uh, I only know of one church in, in the whole northern section. Um, but as we head south, we see a lot of their signs. Um, so... Generally, Islam, as we said, 99% of the population, we're, we're, that's pretty much what we're dealing with. Uh, we really don't have any other competition, if we can put it that way. Um, is that good enough? Did that answer your question? can't remember if there was anything else you threw in there or not. Okay. Yeah, another one. 
when you witness, especially because you're in, in such a, a concentrated Muslim uh, culture, how much of the Quran have you familiarized yourself with to be able to meet those people where they're at in order to, um, let's say, adequately share the gospel yeah. with them? Well, I haven't memorized any verses in the Quran, but I have read the entire Quran and am familiar with the contents. Now, if they're wanting to talk about a particular passage, I wouldn't be able to go and find what they're talking about. But most of them can't do that either. Uh, there are very few people... Well, first of all, let me say that when Muslims read the Quran, you have to do it in Arabic because that's God's language. And when they pray, they pray in Arabic. And probably the percentage of people in, in our area that know Arabic is probably like point zero 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 one percent or something like that. I mean, it's very, very slim. So the vast majority of the people are reading a text that they have absolutely no comprehension of what they're reading. And when they say their prayers five times a day, they have absolutely no idea what they're praying, except they've been given the general idea of this is what you're saying kind of thing. But the, the whole religion of Islam is based on you got to say stuff in Arabic to build up brownie points, if I can use that expression, with God in order for him to let you into paradise. Um, so most of the people we're working with, all they know about the Quran is what they, they hear when they go to the mosque two or three times a week. Uh, that's all they know. They, they have no concept of, of going to a verse and chapter and, and be, being able to defend their faith and all of that. So um, consequently, I haven't had to need to do that either <laughs> as far as the Quran is concerned, but I do have a pretty good understanding of what it teaches. And interesting enough, there are, there are some really interesting things that Muhammad actually said about Jesus, um, and there are some parallels that we can use to, to, to be a bridge to the gospel. So I, I do use those, not as my first approach. I always start with the Bible, but if they begin to try to, you know, really push their view and some of the things, I'll say, well, did you know that the Quran also says this, you know, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. The idea of them trying to keep the people in the dark, mm. you're being able to teach them to read is is breaking them out of that. Yeah, that's, that is exactly what's going on. Um, that uh, they, In fact, there have been many times, several times, that uh, as I've talked with people and I've had conversations with them and, and asked, you know, asking them questions about, did you know that this is what's actually in the Quran and stuff like that? And they'll come back to me like a week later and say, well, I went and talked to my, my imam, my Muslim leader about it, and he said, well, you don't need to be too worried about that stuff. You just listen to what I tell you. You know, and that's, that's really where they're coming from. They don't want their people to know and to be able to read and understand what, what their scriptures say. Because uh, I, I have actually heard converted Muslims admit that when the Muslim leaders get up to the, the upper, upper hierarchies of their leadership and they're in charge of a mosque, and they've gone through all these years of training and learning the Arabic and studying the Quran and all that, they actually recognize that what they are reading, to use a vernacular, is a bunch of hogwash. They realize that. But they have invested so much time and effort to getting to this point where they have a very accepted and respected status in society that, that they are now not willing. First of all, their pride isn't going to allow them to admit, I blew it all those years. And I was really stupid following this stuff. And secondly, they love all the, the, the people that are listening to them on a regular basis and supporting them and providing for, and basically providing their, their lifestyle. And so they continue 
preaching all of the stuff that they know is based on a bunch of silliness because it, dep- it, it, it feeds their lifestyle. Sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got guys doing that on TV here in the States. Um, but anyway, um, so... Yeah, once they actually learn the, the, the Arabic and study it and, and see a lot of the stuff. Now, again, there are some guys that probably, I guess, are really convinced this is truth, and, and they don't see those errors and those inconsistencies, but there's a lot of people that do, and, and I've heard those testimonies. Um, but they, they, they intend to keep their people as ignorant as possible and just say, you just believe what I tell you, and you don't need to understand what the Quran says because I'm the one that needs to tell you that. And so that, that's their whole intent. Yeah, they don't want people to know. <laughs> um, the question I was going to ask is, is the way it sounds is the literacy and the Muslim kind of go together. Mm-hmm. Because the less they read, the more they tell them. Yeah. And what direction. Part... Uh, have the mentality that you really don't need to read God's Word and to spend time studying it on a regular basis um, because, you know, when you go to church, we take care of everything you need to do. And, and that's, it's, it's basically the same mentality. Okay, last chance. Okay, um, I would like to take a few minutes and uh, share some thoughts from God's Word. Um, if you all could turn to Romans chapter 6, and um, I think it's interesting some of the, the questions that we've fielded this morning, uh, I actually was thinking that there's some interesting tie-ins with uh, some of the things that I'd, I, I was wanting to share with you folks. Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to read uh, verses 15 to the end of the chapter, 15 to 23, Romans chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness... So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your goodness and your grace, for the truth we see in your word that even though we were once 
caught up in the bondage of sin with no interest at all whatsoever in you, that you took an interest in us and you sought us out and you made us your children. And thank you that you've given us the privilege, each one of us here this morning, the privilege of sharing these amazing truths with others. And just uh, bless our few minutes in your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to start out with a little bit of uh, word association, and we've already had you folks, I know some, I don't know how pastor usually does this, if you do a lot of interaction when he's preaching, but um, you've already been talking some from out there, so hopefully you can keep it going. Um, but when I say the word slave, just, just shout out, what are some of the things that pop into your head when I say the word slave? Bondage. Chains. Again? Servitude. Hmm? Huh? Sheep. Okay. Okay. Um, And what about um, the word servant? Willing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Humble. Helper. Okay. Hmm? Okay. Fisher of men. That's a good one. Okay. Um, the reason I did this is, is because we're talking in this passage here in Romans, Paul is using the image of slavery. Um. And it's interesting in this passage, in chapter 6, he actually is dealing with this question um, that he's anticipating the Roman Christians and the church in Rome as he's writing this letter to them, that he's been talking about how the first few chapters in Romans about how we are dead in our sins and we're totally depraved and we have no interest in God whatsoever, but then God came and He's provided His amazing grace to save us and to give us freedom in Him. And he's anticipating that these people are saying, well, if we're under grace and we don't have to live under all the restrictions of the law, then I can do whatever I want, right? And and he's anticipating that. And he actually has two arguments here in Romans chapter 6. The the first 14 verses, um, he's using the illustration of a person who dies, and, and Jesus especially, who died and then rose again. And how our baptism is an image of that. And so we are dead to that previous lifestyle. And we now have a new life. And so that old lifestyle should no longer have any influence on us because it's dead. It's past. It's gone. It's buried. And we should now be living in in this newness of life that, that we have in God and in His grace and in His love. And he actually starts these two sections with two different rhetorical questions In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Since we're under grace now, shall we keep sinning because then God can show us more grace every time we sin? He's forgiving us and we're getting more grace from God. So the more I sin, the more grace I get. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. It shouldn't because we shouldn't want to be doing anything that has to do with that old life and all that stuff that's now dead and gone and buried. That's his first illustration. And then in this second section from 15 through the end of the chapter, he has another rhetorical question. Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? 
So um, instead of getting more grace by sinning, his argument here is, well, since the law no longer has any impact on my life, as I said a few minutes ago, I can do whatever I want. I, I, I'm free to, to live however. And once again, Paul is developing this argument that, no, that's not the way it works. And he's using the, the, the image of, of slavery. In the first, for the first argument, he uses the image of, of death, resurrection, and then how our baptism is a reflection of that or an image of that. And here he's using the image of slavery. And uh, I meant to ask Pastor before the service, and I forgot, but do we have anyone here uh, who, who is a, has a doctorate, a doctor's degree uh, of some sort, either medical or PhD or something like that? Do we have any doctors in the house? No. Okay. Uh, so what I like to do, if I can at least get two people in a, in a, in a, in a congregation who are doctors, I, I ask them to stand up, and I ask the congregation, do you realize what we have here? If we have two doctors standing up, we have a paradox. Um, so anyway, uh, but actually in this passage, we have a double paradox. Two times in this passage, Paul is, is showing us some really interesting paradoxi, paradoxes, something like that. Anyway, um, I don't think it's paradigm, but anyway. Um, but it, he's using the image of slavery. And I wanted to, to talk a little bit about that because it's... it's one thing I was kind of surprised when we did this word association thing, nobody came up with racism uh, and oppression and, and a lot of that kind of stuff, which is what we tend to hear a lot these days when that subject comes up. And, and the thing is, in the first century Rome, slavery was not the racist, oppressive, everything that we tend to equate with it. In fact, there were a lot of people that, that um, and, and if you think about it, in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, we do have stories of people who put themselves into slavery because of financial challenges, difficulties, or whatever, um, kind of like going into debt today, you know, um, more or less the same thing. And, and there were actually, uh, there, there are reports uh, that they found in, in the ancient documents that there were even respected people with respected professions like doctors and accountants that were actually slaves of someone else because of some sort of situation that developed at some point. But a slave also had the, the, the opportunity, if he could make enough money, as long as he was doing what his master required of him, if he could make extra money on the side and even own property, he could eventually purchase his, his own freedom. And so it was, again, in, in, as Paul is discussing this subject, it's not the same kind of slavery mentality that maybe we might have being here in America uh, and based on our, our past history. But the, the first paradox that Paul is showing us is, is in these first few verses, he says, verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are the slave of the one to whom you obey? So again, in, in their culture, the idea that, you know, you have this obligation towards this person, and so you have gone to him and said, in order to repay whatever this obligation is, I will be your slave until this is taken care of. And so Paul is saying the, 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 the mentality that a lot of people, and again, some Christians, might have this idea that because I am not 
under the strict, all the rules and regulations of the law, I can do whatever I want. I can live as I please. And then each night I can come to God and say, God, I'm sorry I did all those really terrible things today. Please forgive me. And then tomorrow I go out and do them again. You know, and Paul is saying, no, we can't do that. Because first of all, the first paradox is when you think you are free and you can live however you want, you become a slave of those things. You know, and how many stories do you maybe know, even in your own families, of people who thought they had the freedom to be involved in some activity, but eventually it became such a controlling influence that they can no longer stop doing it? And that's what Paul is saying. When we think that we can live however we want because we are free from the law, then we become slaves of those very things that we think we're free. And, and, and again, how many times in these kinds of situations that maybe you're thinking about, has that person said, oh, I can stop anytime I want. I, I can handle this. I'm good. I got this. And then a little bit later down the road, when they try to stop or, or not do it, it's like they can't. And that's what Paul is saying. When we think we are free and we can live however we want, we actually become slaves of those things. It's an amazing paradox, but it's happened all the time. We see it all the time happening in our culture, in our lives around us. And as Christians, one of the biggest challenges that we face is being in the world, but not of the world. And this is not a new teaching that Paul's teaching here. This is something that God has been sharing with his people from the beginning. We, we, you know, you've got Adam and Eve. There were the two trees, one or the other. There's no middle ground. You make one choice, you make the other. You make one choice, you stick with God and you follow him. You choose to go your own way, you're separated from God. There's no middle ground. Um, Joshua, at the end of his book, he says, Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But he's challenging them, put away your idols, stop following that stuff. One or the other. You can't do both. And, and Elijah on Mount Carmel, again, he's challenging the people. Either serve Baal or serve God, you can't do both. And all through the prophetic books, you know, the, the prophets are saying, you guys are coming to God to the, to the altar with your sacrifices and doing all of your, the, the holidays and all of the religious rituals that are required in the law, but... Then you're, you're going out and you're worshiping these idols and you're committing adultery and you're, you're oppressing people and you're doing all this other stuff. And he says, I, God actually says, I hate, I abhor your sacrifices and all your religiosity because your hearts are far from me. And then Jesus too, he said, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't be material and involved in this world and love those things and also follow me. It's one or the other. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me, or love the world. There's no middle ground. And that's what Paul is saying here. You can't exercise your freedom in the world and think you're not going to become enslaved by it. That's the first paradox. And then he goes, goes on um, in verse 17 and 18 where he introduces a second paradox. He says, Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So he's saying, when we accept Christ into our lives and we allow his grace to renew us and change us, he has freed us from those chains and from that bondage of sin and those vices that once did enslave us. 
And again, I've heard some amazing testimonies of, of people who, when they finally come to the point of recognizing their inability to handle these problems and asking God to help them, that they have been able to quit cold turkey, whatever these issues have been. Others continue struggling with some of the things that have become their masters. But, but there are situations where people, when they truly allow God and recognize the truth that Paul is teaching here, that they can have true freedom by becoming the slave of love, of God. And that's the second paradox. When we become the slaves of God, then we truly are free. Because when we allow His goodness and His grace and the rules of His uh, conduct that we see in His Word to guide our behavior and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes, then we really are free from all of that bondage and from all of that stuff that used to control us. And, and it's no longer the legalistic rules that we're trying to follow that govern our lives, but a wholehearted devotion to God and His will that will guide, guard and guide our lifestyle and allow us that freedom that we, that we never could experience before when we were still letting the world have its influences and still letting it try to, to, to tell us how to live and how to do things and what, how we should behave. And so Paul comes down to the end of this passage in, in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now that sounds kind of weird, but basically what he's saying is when you were enslaved by all that stuff in that old lifestyle, Righteousness had absolutely no impact on your life whatsoever. Not that you were free because you, you, didn't, want it. you didn't want it. It had no, no influence. It was just like it wasn't even on the radar. It was just totally non-existent. And then 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time? Except that you're now ashamed of those things. And you think about it, those things that the world te- tends to tout and say, these things are so important and you need to be doing this and you need to have this. Five years, ten years down the road, what difference does it make? What lasting impact do we get from the things that the world and the devil promises us? Except that at some further point, it's like, wow, why did I ever do that? What was I thinking? Shame is the only lasting fruit when we follow the world's philosophies and the world's thinking, is what Paul's saying here. But then he says, now that you have been set free from sin, verse 22, and have become slaves of God... The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. And then he uses this very well-known verse um, that, again, we, we know this, this last verse because it's very common. It's used a lot in gospel presentations and sharing with, with unsafe people. But it's the result of everything else that Paul has been developing throughout this entire chapter because he's saying the wages of sin is death. And I really think what Paul had in mind there was a slave who is working and setting aside a little bit of money on a regular basis, hoping that eventually he's going to be able to buy his freedom from his master. Because that was a very common concept in in, in Roman culture. But he's telling these people that if you are living in sin, living a lifestyle that is governed by the world and based on the world's principles, you're never going to be able to buy your freedom with that. It's not going to work. The end result of sin is always death. There's no other way. And the only way that you're going to have eternal life is by God's grace. The gift 
that God gives us. And that is, is the message that we share with people in Benin. And that is the amazing truths that each one of us here can be sharing with our friends and neighbors and family who are still enslaved by, by that lifestyle and, and, and blinded by the fact that the world is continually trying to convince them that this is what you really need to be happy and to be free and to be successful and to be fulfilled. But in the end, it all leads to death. And I just want to, again, challenge each of you to make sure that as you are daily living your lives and, and, and making decisions for yourself and your families, don't base it on what the world is saying. Base it on God. What He's told us in His Word. That is the only way to have true freedom. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You were willing to send Your Son to take our place